Our first reading can be found on page 1070 from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second reading is taken from Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. 
and is on page 1208 of the Pew Bible. A call to persevere. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God and with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait upon you. Hush our hearts to listen in expectancy. In Jesus' name, amen. In a pastoral visit to a bereaved person, through the cries of anguish, the periods of silence, and the expressions of anger and frustration, the brief person said to me, you know, the hardest thing is to know that I will never see my loved one again. I couldn't help thinking about that story, uh, or that conversation rather, in relation to today's topic. We continue in a series of sermons based on a book written by my best man, as it happens, David Gillett, who was Mike's um, principal and went on to be Bishop of Bolton. It's entitled Trust and Obey, Explorations in, Christ- in Evangelical Spirituality, The Assurance of Salvation. Now, one of the criticisms leveled at Bible-believing Christians is that it's arrogant to believe that we have the assurance of salvation. No one can be sure, they say, because we're all sinners, none of us is perfect, we all face the day of judgment, or worse, that God accepts everyone, regardless of whether they have been forgiven or not, into his kingdom, contrary to the teaching of Scripture. It is true that none of us is perfect, but believers in Christ stand before the King, before the throne of grace, and face the final judgment without fear, knowing that we can't be cast away. St. Paul described himself as the greatest of sinners. But by God's grace, he knew forgiveness and the hope of eternal life, the assurance of sins forgiven and the hope of heaven. He understood about it and wrote about it in Ephesians. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Our assurance of salvation, then, isn't based on anything that we've done or will do in the future, but on all that Christ has done for us. Any semblance of arrogance on our part, then, is unjustified. It is by God's grace that we've been saved. 
And as believers in Christ, that's an immense privilege that God gives to us. And our readings today support the belief that we can be sure of salvation in John chapter 6 and in Hebrews. The privilege we receive as believers, Jesus said in chapter 6, verse 31 of John's Gospel, whoever comes to me, will I will never drive away. Verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Alleluia. Becoming a Christian can be described in many ways. Last week, we heard in the reading from John chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with the only Irishman in the Bible, Nick Odemus. <laughs> you must be born again. And on a Christian cruise over Easter and during Holy Week, we listened one evening to the testimony of a rock musician from the 1980s band, the Electric Light Orchestra. Oh yes, I can see one or two people nodding and saying yes. And he was wonderfully converted to faith in Christ and had his life transformed. He was asked a question. Well, rock and, rock and roll singers are usually um, concerned with sex, rock and roll, and drugs. He said, well, we weren't into drugs. <laughs> but he was born again. Many within the wider church feel uncomfortable with this expression, being born again. Um, Strange, really, because it's in the Bible, Jesus said it, but they don't feel comfortable. But in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, He who comes to me, he who comes to me. It's another description of becoming a Christian, as is verse 40. He who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Those are tremendously encouraging words for those whose Christian experience hasn't been a story of dramatic conversion. Some of you will look back with thankfulness on a life of steady growth in faith through the years, learning to turn your backs on the world and its rejection of God's standards, and have enjoyed a relationship with Jesus. You've positively in your mind accepted him. Perhaps you've been brought up within a believing family, and at some point that faith has become real for you, and you've found satisfaction in life by feeding by faith on the bread of life, Jesus himself. And since Jesus is the bread of life, all are invited to come to him, to look to him, or be born again, if that's not been your experience of uh, coming to him gradually, but needing uh, you've been born again by faith. It was in stark contrast to the way that many of his hearers regarded him at the time, and it's expressed in verse 36. Jesus said, I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. They had the evidence before them, but they wouldn't believe. He who comes to me, I will not cast out. He promises to raise us up at the last day. That's a privilege we have. How can we be sure? Paul writes in Romans, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved or you could be saved, but you will be saved. 
during the exchange of preachers in the week of prayer of Christian unity, I was invited to preach at Tunbridge Pentecostal Church. And as I went in the door, I was greeted with a handshake and a friendly welcome. And the person said, um, are you saved, brother? I was a bit taken aback by the question. I had a dog collar on, so... <laughs> My colleague at school said to me one day, um, he was asked a question, was the chaplain a Christian? To which he replied, well, he's an Anglican minister. <laughs> I was a bit taken aback, as I said, and I replied, yes, thank you. Are you? <laughs> which equally took him aback. Jesus said, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does it mean to believe in your heart? It means more than just an intellectual understanding, though that's very important and I think will become increasingly important in the years that lie ahead as we face the challenges in society of those who want to undermine our belief in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. It's more than saying Jesus was a great teacher or even saying that Jesus was God's son. To believe in him means to trust in him with your life, to give him your heart and your soul, and to be willing to follow him for the rest of your life. John summarises it this way. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed from death to life. But in order for that to happen, we need to believe in Christ and receive him as our very own. And if today you know you've received Christ, you've passed from death to life. John's Gospel speaks about eternal life beginning here and now. It's a foretaste of heaven to come. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And perhaps if you're a Pompey fan, a believing Pompey fan today, there's hope to come, <laughs> even if your team may not uh, be successful. Something better. Things can only get better. We have the privilege of the assurance of salvation. We also have the fact that we're represented before the throne of God by the full and perfect sacrifice that Jesus offered at the cross. And we shall sing at the end of the service, Before the throne of God, I have a full and perfect plea. We have a great high priest, to use the language here, in Hebrews. In the Old Testament, the priest was the mediator, the human priest was the mediator or intermediary between God and man. But Jesus is that now. We have no need of priestly intermediaries or indeed saints for that matter. We have Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, as Paul says. And this priest is our advocate before the throne of God. He rebuts the accusations of Satan, who says to you, well, you know, you're not really a Christian. You're not really faithful to the gospel. Don't believe Satan. Christ before the throne of God is our advocate through the shedding of his blood. And it ought to be the foundation of our Christian walk. I've already mentioned Tunbridge uh, Pentecostal church and they were very encouraging when I was preaching because they kept shouting hallelujah and it was a real spur to say more and more so I got more and more hallelujahs 
They even shouted hallelujah when I said finally. <laughs> we have the privilege of being assured of salvation. We have the privilege of having Jesus, our intermediary, pleading before the throne of God on our behalf. But as recipients of those privileges, we also have responsibilities that we have to live out as members of the new family of God. And there are four in the verses in Hebrews. And they all begin with the phrase, let us. So verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings. As Christians, we have boldness, we have confidence, is, is the word used here, to come before God. It means that we can approach God, the God of the universe, not as timid human beings and afraid of wrath, but with courage, the assurance of acceptance, and the fact that he hears Paul wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like children who approach their mothers or their fathers for conversation, for comfort, companionship or consolation, we've been given access to God's presence. And even the faintest murmur of help is heard in heaven. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, because you are sons and daughters of God by faith, we can cry out, Abba, Father. That's tremendous to know that we have a Heavenly Father to whom we can cry out. Martin Luther, as he read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, discovered the truth that since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've obtained access to his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. It's a legal term, being justified by faith. Nothing is held against us. And it means we can be certain of God's acquittal at the last day, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. So we can come boldly, but also humbly, to the throne of grace. Secondly, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, in verse 23, for he who promised is faithful. That's a real ground for assurance. He who promised is faithful. Hope doesn't disappoint us, the scripture says. Lots of people in the, in the nation have had their hopes disappointed in the last week. But for us as Christians, the hope of being with God in heaven is not taken away from us. Christian hope is trusting in and knowing and anticipating a reality despite its delay or seeming non-existence, because God has said it was so. What a faithful God have I. What a faithful God who's made us those promises. It's an encouragement then to us to keep on going, despite appearances, despite difficulties or disappointments, and not to depart from Christ, not to give up and not to give in. Thirdly, let's spur ourselves on to love and good works. We have the assurance of sins forgiven, the promise of eternal life, but we can't rest on our laurels and do nothing waiting for the day when we receive his promise. We're supposed to be edifying one another, building one another up. I don't know about you, but I find boxing 
um, especially women's boxing, an unedifying spectacle. But we're sometimes guilty as Christians of knocking each other down, metaphorically, or literally, as I've witnessed, and I've described that previously, so I won't go into it again. We're meant to be encouraging one another, talking to one another about the Lord and spiritual things, not just about football or commiserating with the Navy personnel here today whose team lost at Twickenham, or talking about cars or babies or DIY, but being positive in motivating each other on towards spiritual maturity. And fourthly, and finally... You've either not been listening or you're very polite Anglicans. <laughs> Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Six weeks since Easter, since we read the story of Thomas in the upper room, he missed the first resurrection appearances of Jesus because he didn't attend the meetings. Don't be a Thomas. Don't be a lone Christian. We can't be lone Christians. We shouldn't be lone Christians, unless, of course, circumstances mean that we're sometimes not able to be in a place of worship. When we miss being together for worship, there's a double loss. We miss the worship and we miss each other. The regular worship of God is our obligation. We owe him that wherever we choose to go to worship. And it's our joyful privilege as believers to meet together for worship while we still have the freedom to do so. And we should desire to hear the word of God with other believers. And in coming to worship, it's a sure and certain sign that our faith is genuine. I told the story at 10 o'clock Holy Communion on a Thursday of a vicar of my acquaintance who, when I asked him where he went to church on a Sunday, in the particular place where he went on holiday, he said, oh, we don't do church on holiday. Okay. <laughs> he said, we say a prayer together, then we go uh, and head for the beach. Poor Albert Braithwaite nearly fell off his chair with indignation <laughs> and still splutters. We don't do church. Where was he trained? Well, Albert, he wasn't trained at your college or indeed at my college. We don't do church. That's really not on. We should be meeting and encouraging one another as Christians. We did do church on Easter Sunday in Funchal in Madeira. It happened to turn out to be the warmest, sunniest day of our time away, and we were in church. Uh, We were given a glass of the local tipple after two hours of what was a pretty dreary service, to be honest, apart from the wonderful Easter hymns. Pam Rhodes of Songs of Praise fame was sitting next to me and she said, I like the hymns, which implied that as a Methodist she didn't like too much what else was going on. I read an article recently, I think it was in the Church Times, um, so it's bound to be true, um, that one church has abandoned rotors for worship. And as a result of abandoning rotors, the church has begun to grow. Oh, I haven't got time to unpack that. I'll leave you to unpack it as to why it is that abandoning rotors in church means that there's been church growth. 
Mike's looking confused, so that's slightly worrying. <laughs> Believers in Christ have new privileges and responsibilities as members of the new covenant. The privileges of knowing the assurance of salvation. That someone pleads for us before the throne of grace. We have responsibilities. It's a terrible thing for children or adults to wonder how they fit in to their families. We may well have met those in our working lives who are like that. And that's terrible in an earthly family. It's even more unsettling when it's in the spiritual family. Many Christians live with the thought that they're just not sure how God sees them. Is God in a good mood? Or is he in a judgmental mood? Am I in the family? Or has the father decided that I'm not good enough? It's a very uncertain way to live. How incredibly sad for children and adults in human families not to feel that they fit in. How sad it is for children of the king to live as fe- feeling as though they're outsiders. And I find it sad when I have conversations with people for whom the debt of sin has been paid by Christ on the cross who squirm under the uncertainty of whether they belong to God's family. People sometimes get confused because they base their faith on their feelings or perhaps they've not been well taught and they're not sure of the facts. Feeling is something that's dangerous in many ways. Our feelings can be affected by our circumstances, our health, by the weather, by how much sunlight we get. And a lot of things affect our feelings that have nothing to do with whether or not we're a Christian. We're Christians based not on feelings, but on the promises of Jesus and the words of Scripture. End of. There's no argument with that. Listen to John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. My Father is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. In John's letters, he writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Back to John chapter 6, verse 40, where we started. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I hadn't planned to say this, but I, I think I will. But the, day, the Monday after our daughter's funeral, I got up in school assembly and thanked the school for the kindness that they'd shown and for the expressions of sadness in our loss. And I spoke about Christian hope and said that as Rachel died as a Christian, I will see her again one day. A colleague said on the way out, that was brave, And after a respectful period of time, probably about six to seven weeks in a sixth form lesson, 
one of the boys said, you don't really believe what you said in assembly, do you, sir? I said, well, I don't ever say anything in assembly that I never believe because I would be misleading you. And he said, well, what basis have you got for believing that you'll see your daughter again? I said, because she died as a believer in Christ and the promise is of assurance of salvation and that trusting in Christ, we will see each other again one day in their heavenly places. Someone once wrote, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. If you don't have that confidence today, which comes from trusting Jesus with your life, then I would urge you to talk to one of us before you leave church today, so that you, along with those who trust in Christ, might have the assurance of sins forgiven, of new life today in anticipation of eternal life and that God welcomes you into his kingdom as you put your trust in him by faith in Jesus. As we sit, let's bow our heads to pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of scripture, of the assurance of salvation as we put our trust in Jesus. Thank you that you are indeed a faithful God. Help us to be reassured. Help us to live out the privileges that we have in the way that we lead our lives and live our lives to your praise and glory. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.